Hello everyone, welcome back to History Snippets. My name is Aaron, and today I'm going to read a story to my friend Sky, who has no clue who, what, or when I'm going to be reading about. How are you doing, Sky? I am great. You are great. Hello. Yes. So, let's just get into it. In the early 1877, a U.S. cavalry patrol from Fort Bowie was tracking down a tribe of Apache Indians. Oh boy. The cavalry I... set up camp at a gorge, now known as Iron Springs, hoping to benefit from the small pond of water. Sadly, the water was badly polluted, and the men sent their scout, a man named Jack Dunn, to search the surrounding area for clean water. His search led him to a very large ravine of worn limestone, today called Castle Rock. Now, smooth limestone is often a sign of water, so he headed deeper in. Soon he came across a large outcrop of ore, lead carbonate, known for containing veins of silver. And then he found another, and another, and more of them, just scattered all about. Um, realizing what he had found, Jack Dunn marked the location and headed back to camp to tell his commanding officer, Lieutenant John Rucker, of the valuable gorge filled with silver. The gorge would later be named Tombstone Canyon. Okay, okay. Super ominous. So it's a very happy place. I'm picturing mm -hmm. like dancing elves and rainbows. Now, uh, this is this is Arizona in the 1880s. Oh, which, Arizona. Which is, oh, lovely. I, it's lovely. Arizona. Of course it's Arizona. Anytime it's about like mining, it's Arizona. <laughs> uh. So when Jack Dunn returned to camp, he gathered his friend, a packer by the name of Ted Byrne, and went to the commanding officer, Lieutenant John Rucker, with the information of Jack's discovery. They agreed to name the Jorah and the Gorge Rucker after the Lieutenant John Rucker, who had nothing to do with finding the place. Um, the group planned to register a land claim for the Gorge, but were delayed when they received orders to continue pursuing the Apache Indians. So they asked a fellow scout in the camp, a 43-year-old named George Warren, to register the land claim in their place and scout out the Gorge for potential mines. They made Warren promise to register any locations under the name Dunn. George Warren was given a grub stake and a map to the gorge as payment. A grub stake at the time is a sort of investment. You'd basically give a, a prospector a pack of supplies, like food, mining equipment, money, animals, to provide them with everything they needed to go out and set up operations. And in return mm. for giving them the necessary, like, mining starter kit, you'd get a cut of the future mine. Right. So, but Warren didn't honor his agreement with Jack Dunn. Of course not. On his way to the claims office, he took a small detour through a town, and that town had a saloon. There he got plastered and gambled away the grub stake. <laughs> Realizing his mistake the day after, he traveled to a nearby Fort Huachuca and convinced the people um, in the town of Tombstone in Huachuca to invest in the mine so he could buy the land claim. Wait, wait, so they're... They were what the place was called Tombstone. There's a small town called Tombstone. That's what the the gorge would later nowadays is called. Tombstone. Yeah, yeah. It's Named after that town. At this time, okay. the gorge is called Rucker. That's who who would want to live in a town called Tombstone? Tombstone was a surprisingly common name in the Wild West. Like it's really? you see it all over the movies. No, it's like a ton of small towns were called Tombstone. Like literally hundreds. <laughs> it's crazy. Like it's it's just one of those things. I have no idea why. I mean, it was probably a fitting name. Yeah, I, it, I don't know. There's there's some reason for it. I don't, yeah. Anyways, so, on September 27th, 1877, George Warren filed a claim for Mercy Mine, which is about a mile up through Mule Pass Canyon from Iron Springs. This was 56 days after Jack Dunn had found the mine. 
When Warren got, uh, then Warren got busy. He named the George Tombstone Canyon after the town and purchased several other claims for mines, to such a degree that the whole area became known as Warren Mining District. One of these many mines that he basically bought and then like started digging out but didn't really do anything with was the Copper Queen Mine. It was established when surface nodes of kerosite, also known as white lead or lead carbonate, were discovered in the area. Warren held a one-ninth interest in the Copper Queen mine, but not for long. One day, while drinking with some friends in Charleston, he made a shit-faced bet that he could outrun a horse and lost. And with it, he lost his one-ninth claim in the Copper Queen mine, which is worth about half a million dollars now. Wow. I'm telling you, I cannot run the horse. Don't, don't you worry. This Wait. is a sa safe bet. <laughs> Who the fuck <laughs> thinks he can outrun a horse? How shit-faced do you have to be to think it's you can outrun West. a horse? They knew very well how fast horses were. Like, that's... <laughs> Maybe I mean, it was like a sick horse or something. I, I don't know. Get the one with a limp. <laughs> it has like three legs. That's I can outrun. That's a pig leg. <laughs> kthunk, kthunk, kthunk. I can beat that. Uh, Anyways, and he did the race then and there, by the way, so he raced shit-faced. So he thought he could course. race a horse shit-faced. <laughs> so the, the horse took three steps and won the race because yep. he fell over flat. <laughs> and yeah. So his claim was later bought up by an investor named DeWitt Brisby. The Phelps Dodge Corporation was founded in 1834 by Anson Green Phelps and his two son-in-laws, William Earl Dodge Sir and Daniel James. The company began as an import-export company transporting cotton from the deep south United States to England and industrial-grade metals back from England to the U.S. As the U.S. industrialized, it expanded more and more into the western frontier, and with this, surveyors discovered mountains full of silver and gold and mines opened up all across the northwest. Naturally, the Phelps Dodge Corporation uh, decided to get involved in the mining business and began buying up mines all across the Northwest states. In 1880, the Phelps Dodge Corporation ran, sent a man out in search of potential copper mines that they could purchase. This man was uh, James Douglas, a prospector and inventor from Phoenixville who had invented a new and more efficient method of smelting copper. Now, James had heard of Warren's district from his contacts and gained permission from the Phelps Dodge Corporation to check it out in person for any potential copper mines. James arrived at Tombstone Canyon later that year and concluded that the canyon had multiple potentially valuable undeveloped mines, but that it was also hazardous as hell. Earthquakes, rock slides, unstable geology, immense heat, and being fucking far away from civilization made it a risky but potentially worthy investment. He managed to persuade the company to go forward, and the Phelps Dodge Corporation bought up the entire Tombstone Canyon and all the mines within. Now, the Copper Queen mine was in said canyon, but it was no longer under Warren's ownership because he lost it betting that he could outrun a horse. Yep. Um, a different company has since got a hold of the rights, and they were basically planning to do their own mine. And since it was highly possible that anything under the Copper Queen's mine, that the veins would kind of interact with the mains of the other vine uh, veins, I mean, it would just cause like a whole shitstorm of legal issues. So the Phelps Dodge bought up the entire company that owns the uh, Copper Queen's mine. And in 1885, they established the Copper Queen Consolidated Mining Company. All right. So. Oh, that. Ah, ah, noise. Oh, God, Windows, shut up. Yeah. 
I mean, we're obviously recording this on my computer, so anytime I plug something in, everyone hears something <laughs> fine. But I decided to do it eight times in a row, just so we were really sure I plugged something in. Okay. Ah, work on the Copper Queen mine began immediately, with a small town emerging around the mine called Brisby, named in honor of Judge DeWitt Brisby, the guy who bought the land claim after Warren lost it racing to a horse. Right. Yeah. Um... The surface nodes of kerosite were mined away, and digging into the ground began. It was soon discovered that the Copper Queen mine was no ordinary copper vein. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this. Veins are ranked based on how pure the ore is, which is given in a percentage, mm -hmm. and then what the byproduct of the vein is, what's left over after you've taken out the copper. All right. Most copper mines had veins with about 8-10% to 10 copper, and the most common byproduct is lead. Mm -hmm. Okay. The vein under the Copper Queen mine is 23% copper, mm -hmm. and the byproducts are gold and silver. <laughs> <laughs> Even to date, this is the highest quality copper vein ever discovered in the U.S. <laughs> and then on top of when you're done mining out the copper, you have gold and silver byproducts. That's what's left over when you're done getting copper, not lead. You got gold and silver. Damn. On top of it, it had super value, like turquoise stones, a ton yeah, of yeah. crystalline fixtures, a lot of... Uh, the turquoise and uh, quartz crystals and stuff and the uh, lead carbonate crystals in the Smithsonian Museum are taken from Copper uh, Queen Mine. <laughs> so. Imagine being the guy who, like, gambled that away shit-faced. Oh, fuck. Especially if you did it on something stupid, like trying to outrun a horse. Fuck, like, dude. Yeah. No. <laughs> mm. Mm. Once the surface oxide vein was dug out, the miners were ordered to head deeper, where they discovered three new, larger copper veins of the same purity. Of course. The Phelps Dodge Company went all in investing in the town of Brisby and the Copper Queen Mine. The population of Brisby, this is a town built exclusively for this mine. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Went from a couple hundred people to 9,000 people in two months. <laughs> Holy shit. Like, I think exploded is the right verb to use for that. Yeah. It went from literally a couple houses and shacks in the middle of just the Arizona desert to a city. That's 9,000 1880s. That's uh, that's actually really big. That's a huge town. That's, yeah. That, even to date, that's still a decently sized town in the Midwest. That's US. all right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. The town was split into districts of Warren, Lowell, and San Jose. And despite being built around the Copper Queen mine, other smaller pit mines were also established throughout the town, but none of them would be as profi uh, profitable as the Copper Queen mine or as dangerous. So let's talk about mining operations in the late 1800s <laughs> at the Copper Queen mine. Now we're getting to the good stuff. At this time, handheld jacks and drills had not been invented, so pickaxes mm -hmm. and explosives were the only option. The mm -hmm. usual practice was to set up the explosives, get everyone out of the mine, and then detonate. But gathering hundreds of miners in a mine this big would take hours. So the Phelps Dodge Corporation would just gather those that were directly next to the explosives and detonate. <laughs> So you basically get about, like, 50 out of 800 people out of the mine. Um, yeah, okay, everyone who's in the immediate blast radius, yeah. we'll get those away. Everyone else, yeah. Which works, except that the canyon, according to Warren, was prone to earthquakes and unstable geology. Yeah. So, people, there was deaths resulting from cave-ins and accidental detonations and blowbacks. Um, in 1906, one of the Phelps Dodge Corporation's coal mines in Dawson Stag Canyon Number 2 in New Mexico had an accidental chain reaction that killed 264 people and injured 300 more. And is still to date one of the deadliest mining accidents in U.S. history. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. I mean, 
if you're detonating in the mine with people in it, I what the fuck do you I expect? Mean, no, at that point, I, I'm guessing like the, the people were worth less than the metal they were carrying out. At oh, that for point. sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> there were no engine-powered vehicles that would fit in the mines at this time, so everything had to be hauled out by hand or in man-powered mine carts. Or, in the case of the Phelps Dodge Corporation, they found something cheaper. Mules. Uh, yep. Mules were born, raised, and lived in the mines 24-7, sleeping in stables within the tunnels. They were trained to haul carts of ore out, each cart weighing in at about 2,800 pounds, or about 1,300 kilos. A mule could only work for about four years. After that, their eyesight was pretty much gone, and their backs were fucked up. Like, they literally never left the tunnels. They were born in the caves. Damn. Is Some it bad the... that I feel worse for the mules than the people that died there? That'll change. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the mules, if they were not literally broken, uh, would be sold off to farmers who had to readjust them to daylight. They do this by putting eye patches over them. The eye patches had tiny holes poked in them, which they would gradually widen over the course of many months as their eyes slowly learned to deal with light. So, yeah. <laughs> Being a mule in the 1800s wasn't great either. <laughs> I don't think being anything in the 1800s was very great. In... No. <laughs> the Phelps Dodge Corporation cut costs wherever they could. They didn't allow safety operators on pumps. They didn't allow safety operators on pit drills. They didn't allow safety operators on elevators. They often underpaid or even didn't pay workers at all. They had the miners strip-searched naked every day to make sure they weren't stealing any ore. Discrimination against Mexican and African-American workers by the European-American supervisors was described as routine and extensive. They often ordered miners to go into subtunnels alone when the norm was to go two and two in case of an accident. They refused to pay for trained construction workers, so all scaffolding, support pillars, and mechanical systems were made by untrained miners. All in all, it's terrible even by 1880s mine standards. Yeah. Problem didn't stop there, though. Oh, boy. The Phelps Dodge Corporation not only had an iron grip on the mine, but the whole town. I mean, they owned the Copper Queen Consolidated Mining Company, but they also owned the two surrounding mining firms, the Calumet and the Arizona Co. and the Chautauqua Arizona Co., meaning that if a worker quit the Copper Queen mine, they would not get a job anywhere in Arizona. It was all Phelps. They owned everything. Phelps Dodge Corporation. It's just, it was them and five subsidiaries. They owned every mine. Then to the north... The Phelps Dodge Corporation was the biggest producer of lumber and lumber products in the U.S., which was often the alternative job for ex-miners. So that wasn't an option either. Like so if, pretty much work for us or die. Yeah, like if you if you worked for them and then quit, they blacklist your name and you'd not get a name. You wouldn't not work in lumber or mining or any of their ships or any of their railroads fucking ever again. Like it would it was literally cutting off half the jobs in America if they blacklisted uh, you. Sounds like a swell company. Yeah. Um, the Phelps Dodge Corporation owned the hotels in the town, they owned the hospital, they owned the only department store, they owned the library, they even owned the town newspaper, the Brisbane Daily Review, which favorably wrote about the Phelps Dodge Corporation and its mines. Surprise, surprise! This was the life for the 9,000 miners of Brisbane. Damn. Like, it's... It sounds like a dystopian, like a, like a, like, it sounds like something you'd read in like a cyberpunk movie, like a company yeah, against the government. Yeah, the mega corporations yeah, have they taken were, over. they were the government yeah. there. Like, there was an yeah. American government, it had nothing to do with Brisbane. Everything in Brisbane was led by them. They did the law enforcement, like, this company was everything. 
Damn. The fuck are you going to do? It's just desert for weeks in any direction. Yeah, no, it's like... <laughs> You're, it's, it's a prison, basically. It is, yeah. yeah. In May of 1917, the miners began unionizing under the Industrial Workers of the World Union, a U.S.-wide union organization. They were locale number 800, Metal Mine Workers Industrial Union. So we're going to use the abbreviation IIW for this union. Okay. Okay. The IIW Local 800, which is their subdepartment basically, gathered a list of demands and presented it to the Phelps Dodge Corporation. The demands included an end to physical strip searches after shifts, requiring miners to go together at all times, safety operators on drills and elevators, no more detonations while people are in the fucking mine, an end to the wage theft, hiring in trained construction workers to build the mine reinforcements, paying per shift instead of per pound or mined, no more discrimination against union workers. The Phelps Dodge Corporation refused every demand. I am not really surprised at that point. No. I mean, no. yeah. No, they're stroking their big bushy mustaches. They all have monocles in my head. Yeah, no, I, I can picture them all at the round table, these demands. Um, okay, oh, general safety precautions. Uh, they, they want not to be killed routinely. Preposterous. What do we expect them to do? Get them out of the mines before we push the lever? I mean, come on, <laughs> gentlemen. Time is money. <laughs> this is Brisbane, goddammit. <laughs> So, yeah. Um, in response to the IIW, in the response to this, the IIW organized a strike. It was set to begin on June 26, 1917. The miners of the Phelps Dodge Corporation, as well as the miners from surrounding mines from the other subsidiaries of the corporation, all walked out. In total, about 3,000 men, which is about 85% of all mine workers in Brisbane, went on strike that day. The strike went on over the next days, with the miners peacefully marching in the streets. No incidents. There's no rioting, there's no violence, no destruction of company and property, not a single window was smashed, no beer bottles were thrown. It is the most peaceful riot I've ever read about. Like, literally nothing. There was no fighting, they just marched with some signs. They didn't destroy it, they put up, like, as they left the mine, they put away all their tools, made sure all the machinery was turned off right. Literally the nicest rioters ever. That's, that's impressive, considering these people were the worst treated people yeah. you can imagine. No, like there and was they were not, the most they civil. Nothing. It is the most Damn. peaceful riot ever. Okay? So naturally, the local authorities and supervisors, paid for by the Phelps Dodge Corporation, called mm -hmm. for the federal troops of the United States to end the strike. <laughs> Conchise County Sheriff Harry Wheeler arrived at Brisby on the first day of the strike. On July 2nd, he called for Republican Governor Thomas Edward Campbell to request for federal troops, stating that the strike threatened U.S. war interests and, quote, the whole thing appears to be pro-German and anti-American. This is when World War I was going on, so. Yeah. And uh, the, the request for copper was, like, through the roof right now. A lot of uh, mm -hmm. copper that was used for anything for telephone lines, the war machines, came from the Copper Queen mine. Mm -hmm. So, Governor Campbell sent a telegraph onwards to the White House, requesting President Woodrow Wilson to send the army to deal with the strikers. Woodrow Wilson, a sane man, declined, instead ordering a former Arizona governor, George W.P. Hunt, to act as a mediator and solve the situation peacefully. Now, the current CEO of the Phelps Dodge Corporation is Walter S. Douglas, the son of James Douglas, the guy who was hired by the company to scout out the ravine originally and then, and then right, buy right. it up. Yeah. 
So Walter S. Douglas, um, he's a CEO. He was also the president of the American Mining Congress, an employer association. He won that position by vowing to break every union in every mine in Arizona. That was like literally his campaign slogan. <laughs> so naturally, it did not look good with a union strike in his personal mine. Yeah, can't have that. When the mediator Hunt refused to send the state militia to deal with the strike, Douglas lost his shit, attacking him in the press for failing to do his duties as an ex-governor. Without the assistance from neither the national nor the local government, Douglas and the Phelps Dodge Corporation had to deal with the strike themselves. And Douglas had a plan. He established what he called a Citizens Protective League, a group of vigilante business leaders, middle-class residents, and bribed law enforcement to deal with the strikers. Basically a posse, a militia. Yeah. Company. Yeah. On the 5th of July, 1917, nine days after the strike began, the nearby town of Jerome joined the strike. The mines in that town were small, but still owned by the Phelps Dodge Corporation, naturally, and Douglas put his new makeshift army to the test. He ordered his superintendents to remove the striking miners from the town completely. Mine supervisors, along with 250 local businessmen and members of Douglas's militia, began rounding up suspects of IWW members on the John of July 10th. Over 100 men were kidnapped by militia and thrown in the county jail, who had been paying off, uh, paid off to cooperate with uh, Douglas's men. Later that day, 67 of those men were forcefully moved onto a cargo train headed for Needles, California, and told never to return. They were not allowed to take any belongings, their money, or even their family. This would be known as the Jerome Deportation. Douglas's test run had been a success, so he sent orders to do the same in Brisbee, but on a far larger scale. Jerome had a hundred strikers. Brisbee had 3,000. Okay. And he basically is just like, round them up, stuff them on a train, ship them out. Yeah, no, this dystopian feud past is getting pretty much, yep. <laughs> On the 11th of July, Sheriff Wheeler of Brisby traveled to the nearby town of Douglas, named after you guessed it, to meet mm -hmm. with the corporate executives of the Phelps Dodge Corporation. <laughs> Together, they laid the plans for the Brisby deportation. They gathered a posse. You know what a posse is, right? Yeah. I actually had to yeah. search up that word because I was like, what the hell is a post? No, it's a, yeah, that's a militia. <laughs> So they gathered a posse of over 2,200 men from the towns of Douglas and Brisby, which is still, to date, one of the largest corporate posses ever organized. The Phelps Dodge Corporation met with the executives of the El Paso and the Southwestern Railroad and paid them off to provide trains and cargo cars for the massive deportation of striking miners out from Brisby. The following morning, on July 12th, the following announcement was posted in the Brisby Daily Review. Quote, a sheriff's posse of 1,200 men in Brisby and 1,000 men in Douglas, all loyal Americans, has formed for the purpose of arresting on the charges of vagrancy, treason, and of being disturbers of the peace of Koshai's County, all those strange men who have congregated here from other parts and sections for the purpose of harassing and intimidating all men who desire to pursue their daily toil. I don't think they invented the comma yet, because that's a four-line long sentence. <laughs> The same message was posted on fences, telephone poles, and walls all throughout Brisby in hopes of convincing the strikers to give up. I do want to point out, they're peacefully striking. This is the 1800s, and not a beer bottle has been smashed. That's mind-blowing. 
I mean, it is. I still don't like. This is the one of the most evil corporation in history, <laughs> and these guys are just like, guys, guys. We'll be the bigger men. We'll be peaceful. No, we're not smashing those bottles. No. I mean, no God drink. Bless their patience. It's it's. They were all actually Zen monks. Like it's just. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe that's the, the trick to like Nirvana. Like being in a mine makes you a calm, sophisticated person. I think it's just the fact like they're so far away from civilization. Everything around them is Phelps Dodge Corporation. Like yeah. if they give it, Phelps Dodge Corporation any excuse to use violence, like they'd be killed probably. I mean, it's just fucking. Yeah. Phelps Dodge Corporation owns the law enforcement here. I mean, I guess I can see it. Like they literally have no choice. A peaceful demonstration is the best they can do, and even that's risky as hell. At point in case, yeah. 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 So, at 4 a.m., 2,200 militia deputies snuck into Brisby and took up their planned positions. Each wore a white armband for identification and had been given a list of the striking men they were to arrest. All 9,000 of them. Uh, 9,000, 3,000, sorry. Still. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, at 6.30 a.m., they began their siege on the town, smashing open doors and arresting everyone who was on their list. They also arrested the local uh, grocery store owners and ransacked their shops for money and food, just because you're already there, why not? Because, I mean, clearly they're the good guys. The posse arrested pretty much any male they came across, whether or not they were actually on the list. One of the miners shot and killed a militiaman who tried to arrest him and was instantly killed himself by three nearby militiamen. Mm-hmm. By 7.30 a.m., 2,000 striking miners were gathered in front of the Brisbane post office. From there, they were marched two miles to Warren Ballpark, a large field near the train tracks. Sheriff Wheeler himself oversaw the march, driving a car that had been mounted with a loaded Marlin 7.62mm belt-fed machine gun. <laughs> I hope this isn't going where I think it's going. <laughs> At the field, the militia told the strikers that any man who denounced the IWW and went back to work would be freed, but this was only offered to those who were not already members of the IIW. IWW. Um, about 700 men agreed to this, mostly those who were not actually strikers to begin with and had just been rounded up at random. The rest of the strikers sang, jeered, and shouted profanities. So 1,300 men shouting profanities, which must sound amazing. Have you ever been to like like a baseball game or whatever? Now picture of everyone in the stadium is mm-hmm. just saying "fuck." <laughs> amazing. Uh, I'm sure that happens in sports stadiums on occasion. <laughs> at 11 a.m., 23 cattle cars arrived at Brisbee, provided by the El Paso and the Southwestern Railroad. The posse forced the remaining 1,286 strikers at gunpoint into the cargo cars. The cars had not been cleaned after the last shipment and had, quote, three inches of manure inside. Mm-hmm. It was over 90 degrees or 30 degrees Celsius, so the cars had a terrible stench and heat to them. And on top of that, the strikers had not been given any water since their arrest um, seven hours earlier. Yep. Did I say this is Arizona, by the way, midsummer? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. The train stopped about 10 miles later, 16 kilometers, to the east of Douglas, where the strikers were given some jugs of water to share. While the train was stopped, 200 militiamen marched the tracks to prevent escapes, and two mounted machine guns overlooked the site from a nearby hilltop. Holy shit. After this, the train traveled for 10 hours, around 175 miles or 282 kilometers, to Columbus, New Mexico, in the desert heat, arriving at 9.30 p.m., 
Columbus officials told Douglas's militia they did not want to deal with the strikers, and the train was forced to continue traveling for another 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, to Hermanus, arriving six hours later at 3 a.m. During all of this, the Phelps Dodge Corporation had seized control of all telegraph and telecommunication lines out from the area, shutting down every telephone line out from the basic northwestern part of America. Like, just pff, total blackout. Um, they prevented any word from the arrest of getting out. They even managed to order the Western Union to not allow wires or letters getting out from any of the affected towns, and they chased away any reporters near the area. They forced a total lockdown on over 20 towns. <sighs> The entirety that's, of Arizona and good parts of New Mexico just instantly stopped being able to send telegrams and letters. I mean, that's, that's this crazy. Company. This company is—it's nuts. It's dystopian. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thousand three hundred strikers were unloaded in the small town of Hermanas without money or food. The Luna County Sheriff sent a obviously very worried message to the governor of New Mexico asking what to do with the 1,300 hungry, penniless men he now just has sitting in his marketplace. Uh, the governor, Washington Ellsworth Lindsay, replied saying that the men should be treated humanely and fed, and then he sent a message to President Woodrow Wilson asking for further advice. We found one decent human being. Yep. President that took long enough. Yeah. President Woodrow Wilson was pissed. Because mm -hmm. he was like, I'm not going to send the army. And it goes four days. He's like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> Maybe he should send the army, you but for different reasons. 1,300 hungry men in your town? Jeez. Why is my telegraph not getting through? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So he was pissed. So now he ordered the U.S. Army to intervene. Yeah. Escorting the striking men back to Columbus, New Mexico, the town they passed that didn't want to deal with them, where they were allowed to stay for two months in a camp that was originally meant for Mexican refugees, basically allowing them to kind of collect themselves and get new jobs and, you know, get themselves sorted out. After the Brisby deportation, Douglas's militia, led by Sheriff Wheeler, took over control of the town of Brisby. They interrogated inhabitants about their political beliefs, kicking out anyone who even slightly aligned with IWW. Sheriff Wheeler set up armed guard posts at every entrance, requiring everyone going in or out of Brisby to have a Wheeler passport. A makeshift court was established under Wheeler with him as the judge and the Phelps Dodge Corporation running the laws, where citizens were tried, most deported, and threatened with beatings or lynchings if they dared return. I mean, at this point, that is that's reason. Yo, I mean, they, they've basically established a new nation yep, within the that's U.S. That's exactly what they did. Yeah. When the Arizona Attorney General ordered Wheeler to stop, he had to explain himself. Regarding if what he did was legal, he said, quote, I have no statutes that I had in mind. Perhaps everything that I did wasn't legal. It became a question of, are you American or are you not? I would repeat the operation any time I find my own people endangered by a mob composed of 80% aliens and enemies of my government. No regrets. Nope. Basically, that's just summarized with, worth it. He sits <laughs> on like a throne in Brisbane. Like, there's a yeah. woman feeding him grapes. Like, it's like, that's what he's done now. He's taken over uh -huh. the town. Uh, when the word of the Brisby deportation finally got out, like, two weeks after it happened, finally the telegraph lines were reopened, and, like, these people start being able to ship out, and they're like, dude, mm -hmm. you will not believe what happened. Um, national press covered... No, wait. National press was muted. Most newspapers ignored the event, and those that did publish it lied, saying that the workers were violent and deserved what happened. A few papers agreed Wheeler had gone a bit overboard, but only in regards that he should have arrested the men, not deported them. 
the New York Times criticized the violence from Douglas's militia, but then turned around and said that the arrests on grounds of vagrancy charges would have been far better. Former President Theodore Roosevelt said, quote, No human being in his senses doubts that the men deported from Brisbane were bent on destruction and murder. In October 1917, Wilson organized five investigators led by William B. Wilson and Felix Frankfurter to look into what happened in Brisbane. In their final report, issued on the 6th of November, they said, quote, The deportation was wholly illegal and without authority in law, either state or federal. So finally, like, we've got, like, a federal judge coming in mm -hmm. here and be like, dude, the fuck? On May 15th, 1918, the U.S. Department of Justice ordered that Walter S. Douglas, alongside 21 other Phelps Dodge executives, and some from Calumet and Arizona Co., and several leaders and law enforcement officers of Brisbane, be arrested and tried for what they did. Sheriff Wheeler was not arrested, as he was now serving in France in World War I. The defense uh, issued a pre-trial motion that Douglas and the other Phelps Dodge executives be released as no federal laws had been broken, only local ones, if that, which was accepted. The Justice hey. Department tried to appeal, but was shut down from Chief Justice Edward Douglas White, who led a vote 8-1 to one stating that the U.S. Constitution did not force the federal government to protect the rights of deportees. He also said that arresting Douglas and Phelps Dodge would require this to be a, quote, state discriminatory action, which he said it wasn't. So he said no discrimination happened. So they were not allowed to arrest these men. Damn. This is hurting my soul. Like, also, actively I'm just... I'm who was paying the federal judges of Well, Arizona. yeah. yeah. Uh, Phelps Dodge mm. just like, that's a big wad in your pocket there. Do I get to go, or...? <laughs> Arizona officials never pursued any criminal charges against those responsible for the Brisbane deportation, and the workers were never compensated for their lost wages, jobs, or property. Many tried to file civil suits, but in the first civil suit tri tried, the jury concluded that deportations were a good public policy, and after that, all the other civil suits uh, for the workers just instantly were dropped. When the mm -hmm. first one got... I paid. mean, they had presidents, yeah. too. Yeah. A few workers did manage to win about $500 to $1,000 each in a related union lawsuit, but that's pretty much it. Only a handful were allowed to return to Brisbane to gather belongings or continue working. <laughs> the Phelps Dodge Corporation kept on being a major company over the next century, owning massive amounts of lumber mills, mines, smelteries, industrial works, factories, shipping docks, you name it. They're just huge. Mm -hmm. On the 19th of November, 2006... The Phelps mm -hmm. Dodge Corporation merged with Freeman McMoran for $25.9 billion in cash and stock, and are now the world's largest publicly traded copper mining company with over 26,000 employees today. They have mines all across the world in Baghdad, Marinci, Saruatia, Safford, Miami, New Mexico, Arizona. They make $12 billion in revenue with a net income of $3 billion a year, as of 2013, the Political Economy Research Institute calculated Phelps Dodge as the 41st largest corporate producer of air pollution in the world, releasing 4.5 million pounds of toxins into the air each year. Examples are sulfuric acid, chromium compounds, lead compounds, and raw chlorine. The Center for Public Integrity reports that the Phelps Dodge Corporation is responsible for and owns 13 different superfunded toxic law landfills. I was unable to find a single statement 
or apology from the Phelps Dodge Corporation for the Brisby deportation. Well, shit. mine was shut down uh, a couple years ago when it ran out, and then they opened four other mines in the same area. Town of Brisby still exists. Still a mining town. So, yeah. They, they got away with it. They're still, like, they're literally one of the biggest mining companies in the world. They never acknowledged it. They never put any statements out. <laughs> oh, okay. I read a lot of comic books growing up. Yep. And, um... Well, those villains in those comic books... They always seemed a bit far-fetched. Yeah. <laughs> they, they always seemed like, nobody's that evil. Nobody's evil for the sake of being evil. Yeah, I miss those colorful villains right now. <laughs> yeah, no, <sighs> no, they're still around. I mean, they, they've been around for 150 years. They fucking, they own everything. They got mining companies. They still do lumber. They're still, like, the largest producer of copper wires. And they're also the 41st largest company of air pollution, like, in the world. That's including Chinese factory companies, mind you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there was also, like, a whole thing. I didn't even really get into it. But they, uh, they've they opened up uh, chromium mines in Arizona now, which is excessively toxic. And they're not properly regulated, but no one's really dealing with it. So it's just, like, seeping into the groundwater. <laughs> and the air, naturally. So, yeah. Well... Have a wonderful day. The yep. world is a bright place. <laughs> Till next time, everyone. Have a good one. Oh.